0: Well, let's pray before we look into God's word together this morning. Our God and Heavenly Father, we truly do exalt you right now. You are a great God. You are a God who is greatly to be praised. And you are also to be obeyed. And with that in mind this morning, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing your good and perfect will for your people your desires for your people, your demands even for your people. We recognize that those desires and those demands are not left to guesswork. They're not mysterious. They're not hidden. They are revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. But at the same time, Father, we're also aware and we confess that we are sometimes hard-hearted in relation to your commands. We are not quickly and joyfully and even willingly submissive to what you have for us and so our prayer now is father that you would soften our hearts that you would prepare our hearts to see your will for us that you would help us to see your will for us as eminently desirable and good good for us and glorifying to you for we pray these things in jesus name Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We've been making our way through that wonderful, challenging letter this summer. I believe if you're using those Bibles, it might actually open up right to 1 Peter. But uh, if it doesn't, it's on page 1050, I think is where we're at. Uh, 1 Peter 2, or at least that's where it was last week, and I don't remember looking this week. So... 1 Peter chapter 2, and I just want to read verses 13 to 17 for us this morning. So reads the Word of God. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good... You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, really slaves of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So, as we've been going through this letter, we've started to see that as the people of God, Christians have a kind of strange existence. If Christians truly try to live out their Christianity, they will have inevitable clashes as they live within the confines of this world. And that's because while we live in the world physically, this, after all, is the realm of our existence, this is all we know, but as we live in this world, even though we live in this world physically, we have been called out of this world spiritually. We belong to the world in one way, but we don't belong to the world in another way. We belong in the world, but we do not belong to the world. So what are some of these clashes that we run into, clashes that we pretty much just live with as we live, as, as Peter calls it, or as Jeremiah calls it, as exiles in this world. Well, for one thing, we saw last week, back in verse 11, that the passions of the flesh are warring against ourselves. There, there's a clash that's going on in our hearts. Our hearts have been transformed by the love of Christ. Our sins have been wonderfully forgiven by God, we have been saved by grace through faith. Our desires are, have been reshaped and reformed, and they've been renewed. Yet those old desires of the non-Christian or pre-Christian versions of ourselves keep, keep pawing at us, keep enticing us, keep alluring us, keep tempting us. There is a clash that's happening. It's, it's, like, it's sort of like our immune system that keeps on fighting off bacteria, that's what it's there for, to fight off all these antibodies, all these bacteria that are coming at us from every different direction. But every once in a while, that that bacteria makes it through the immune system. And bang, we get a cold, or a flu, or even worse. We sometimes give way to those passions of the flesh that are warring against our soul, that are always threatening to come at us. And then we need to take God's remedy. It's called repentance to get rid of that bacteria. But that clash or that war is always there. It's being waged in our hearts. It's being waged in our passions. It's being waged in our desires. But then there's another clash. And this clash comes at us from the outside, from the world itself, this world in which we live and move and have our being the world as a whole, and doesn't like the way Christians live. Our values and our morals are sometimes deemed to be offensive. Consider this recent headline. Two Canadian cinema owners receive death threats ahead of the unplanned screening. Unplanned is a pro-life movie. It's about a former uh, abortion facility director who is now converted And it's sort of her biography. And this movie has now been accepted for release into Canada by by the film board. But these cinema owners are the ones that are letting it being shown in their movie theaters are coming under persecution and even death threats. Our morals and our values are sometimes deemed to be offensive. In large part, the world puts up with Christians, but if push comes to shove and, and, and pushing is more and more turning into shoving, isn't it? We can feel that clash. And so 1 Peter is trying to help us out here at this level. When Peter wrote this, this letter, these, those Christians back then were really starting to feel the pressure from the outside. It was starting to press in on them. The Roman emperor at that time, Nero, was... I was going to say a little bit crazy, he was a lot crazy, a little bit deranged, and he was power hungry. He wanted the citizens of Rome to worship him and him alone. And he didn't really like this little uprising that was starting to, to be raised up, that was going on in a small corner of the empire. It started there in a little place called Judea in the city of Jerusalem as people started aligning themselves with someone called Jesus Christ. This one that had been crucified on a cross and now purportedly had been resurrected. And not just aligning with him, but their worship was starting to be directed towards him. Which means it was being redirected away from Nero. This movement was spreading and expanding in spite of extensive efforts by the Romans to stamp it out. In fact, the more they tried to get rid of Christians, the more these Christians scattered. And the more they scattered, the more they spread their faith. For Nero, Christians were like that, you know, that irritation that you have that starts off as a little rash, but with the, you know, as you scratch it more and more, the more that seems to spread. That's what Christianity was like there in the Roman Empire. But for those Christians, the pressure from the outside from their vantage point, was starting to weigh down on them, was starting to bear down on them. They were always under threat. They always had to keep their heads on a swivel. They could never feel comfortable. They could never settle in and put their feet up and take it easy. It's these kind of people that Peter is writing this letter to. He calls them strangers in this world. Aliens, exiles, temporary residents. They're in the world, but it was becoming... Very obvious that this world was not home. Yet this is where God placed them. This is where God places us for now, before he takes us into our eternal home in heaven. Well, First Peter gives us some help for, for this meantime and for this in-between time that we are in right now. We saw the general principle last week in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. So here we are living among Gentiles, living among unbelievers. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Keep it excellent. Kalos is the word. Excellent. Beautiful. So that when they speak against you, so here we get the clash. They're they're speaking against you. It's a pressure coming against you. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They're speaking, but they're also seeing. They may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of visitation. So, so they're pushing against you, they're speaking against you, but they're also watching you. And if you're doing good, you're quietly, peaceably doing good, bonus deal here, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. You're being a do-gooder might be partly responsible for their salvation. That's the general principle, but now he gets more specific here. How do we live godly lives now in different contexts? And for today, in connection to our leaders, to the leaders of our land. How should those Christians that Peter is writing to, think about Nero, this man that ordered their persecution, how how do the godly think about their godless leaders? That's not an easy question to navigate, is it? But it's one of those areas that we as Christians need to try to figure out and need to understand and need to find out what God's wisdom is on this area. How would God have us think about our earthly leaders? Sometimes, in our natural selves, our inclination is to dig our heels in and push back. Isn't it? Someone pushes us, we tend to want to push back. Or our inclination might be to place ourselves maybe a notch above the rules of the land. After all, the thinking might go like this I'm under the authority of God, so when it comes to the laws of land, I'm not required by God to obey. Well, that might sound logical enough, but that's not God's logic, generally. Peter clearly emphasizes the opposite point here. Yes, there are limits to human authority. And yes, God is the highest authority. And and we'll we'll see both of those provisions here. But it does not follow that Christians can then disregard the authorities of the land. And that's the point that Peter's going to make here. We are rather to, as verse 13 says, be subject to every human institution. And by the way, it's not only Peter that makes that point. Paul makes it too in places like Romans 13 and other places. And so actually does the Lord himself. Remember he says things like render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Tells Peter to pay the the temple tax through a miraculous provision from the mouth of a fish. If it were only that easy. Be subject Submit. Submit yourselves. How does that word strike you? Do you like to be told to submit? It's one of those words that makes us sort of clench our teeth a little bit, doesn't it? That's our first impulse. We push back because we like to be in charge. We don't, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. But this is actually the kind of posture that Peter encourages for Christians as they relate to the unbelieving world. That word literally means to put yourself under. It's a certain kind of posture in how Christians should relate to the world. Now, we're just going to look at this section today, but if you don't like that idea of submission or subjection, I hate to tell you, but it's going to show up again next week. And it's going to show up again the week after. So, if this idea of subjection really gnaws at you, if you haven't planned your vacation yet, the next two weeks might be a good opportunity for you to do that. Unfortunately, you won't get off the hook. The Christian life is a life of subjection. The, The Christian life is a humble life, especially when it comes to how we deal with the unbelieving world. Well, here in verses 13 to 17, the context of Christian submission is in relation to emperors and governors, kings and leaders, prime ministers and their appointed civil authorities. Be subject to every human institution. Actually, that word institution is literally creation, creatures. Be be subject to those people who God has put into place that govern over us. For the Lord's sake, it says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, sent by emperors, that is, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Be subject to them. Christian, be subject to those who govern. That's the main point. When we became Christians, we we gained this new stature that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, an exalted stature. Peter had made that point. Back earlier in the chapter, verse 9, you're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're already kings and princes. You're a holy nation. You, together, all of us, are a people for God's own possession. Wow, so if all that's true, if we've been raised up to such exalted heights, aren't we now large and in charge? especially when it comes to how we relate to all the other people down here, you know, the people who have not been raised up to these exalted heights. Aren't we a notch above? Why would Peter say we have to put ourselves under? Well, three reasons. Number one, our subjection is motivated by a desire to honor God. Our subjection is motivated by a desire to honor God. In other words, we don't subject to the emperors and governors primarily for their sake. They're just human institutions. They've been given their place of authority. It's a delegated authority by God. They exist under God's ultimate authority, but their position is not our motivation for subjection. Our motivation is precisely that they have been put there by God. They have been put there by God. We are subject to every human institution for, verse 13, the Lord's sake. And he says, we ought to submit for our good and for His glory. He says it again more directly down in verse 15. Be subject, again, that's the main thought here, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, emperors, governors, etc. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. Makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? If It's God's will that we are subject to human authorities. If God said it, then we should do it. Furthermore, verse 16 says, we are servants of God. If you just kind of look at this whole paragraph, you can see that God is in every verse, except verse 14, and there, really, it's implied that that's what he's talking about. And ultimately, we'll see next week, in verses 21 and following, that this isn't just some sort of a grudging obedience if God says that we need to do it kind of thing. It's an obedience that's rooted in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being subject to er our earthly authorities is the way we honor God for because this is the will of God. Here's an illustration of how this might work. We have all kinds of laws in this land, all different kinds of category of law that we need to abide on. But let's just take traffic laws. Sort of not a too-much-in-your-face example, although it might be. The government is ultimate, ultimately responsible for making the laws in connection to roads, in connection to driving. Here in Alberta, that's all spelled out in something called the Traffic Safety Act. So let's just say that they decided to change some laws. For example, the government decided that, that, that where there were previously school zones, they now become playground zones. Now, this illustration may or may not be hypothetical. And so, instead of having the speed limit be reduced only during school days and only during school hours, they are now reduced to every day between 7 a.m. and 9 p.m. And let's just say I noticed that, and, and the thought that came into my head when I first saw that is, that's dumb. Why should I slow down when there's no school? I'm not going to do that. Can I be justified in those thoughts? Well, no. But why? Because it is the will of God that I be subject for the Lord's sake to the government. Now, I might get, a, get away with not obeying that. I could make sure that there's no one around enforcing that law so that I don't get caught for a traffic violation. But I can't get away with that in God's eyes. God is always there. And by rebelling against the government, I am disobeying God's call to submit. I obey the laws of the land for the sake of the Lord. Unless the laws of the land contradict God's laws, in those cases I must obey God rather than man. And if you want to read about a provision for that, you can look at Acts chapter 5 verse 29. But only in those cases. Those are exceptions. Ordinarily, we are supposed to be subject to every human institution, for this is the will of God. Now notice the practical part of this kind of submission to the government. The government is there to punish those who do evil, and it's there to praise those who do good. So governments and, and leaders of our land, the laws themselves, keep public order. That's their purpose they prevent chaos they restrain evil and that's a good thing for us it's a good thing for our land so when we as god's people are subject to our emperors and governors we are living a godly and god pleasing life that's our motivation ultimate motive for submission it's a it's really a vertical obedience to god that that's displayed that's played out in by horizontal obedience to the earth's leaders. It's a vertical obedience to God that's displayed by a horizontal obedience to the earth's leaders. Well, secondly, notice at the end of verse 15, subjection to human authorities by God's people muzzles accusations against God's people. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So again, what is the Christian posture? That's what we're looking for in a world where there's hostility against Christians, in a world where Christianity and a Christian mindset is often an object of ridicule. What is the proper Christian response when, say, our faith is increasingly being marginalized? In a world where the Bible even while it is not totally removed, it is being reinterpreted to, to, to mean something it's never meant to mean. In a world that is anti-Christian, essentially, in its agenda. In a world in which even God's natural laws are being overturned, even in something as basic and binary as gender. And some of this overturning is fueled, and financed, and it's even being formalized into bills by our government. In this kind of a world, what is the Christian posture? What is the mindset that God expects of his people? Back in the day that Peter wrote this, Christians were being accused of all kinds of things, things like rebellion and subversion because they would not worship Caesar. They were even being accused of cannibalism. Because Jesus said things like, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life. Non Christians would look at that and think about that and say, You Christians are cannibals. Peter calls these kinds of accusations, verse 15, the ignorance of foolish people. They don't understand what Jesus meant. They don't understand God's Word, and yet they make these kind of out-there accusations. Second Corinthians 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they just don't understand. Natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. It's blinded the minds of the unbelievers, but that doesn't stop them from maligning Christianity. And today, people still don't understand Christianity, yet they think they do. And like I said last week, we're accused of all kinds of things that aren't actually true of us for the most part. Narrow-mindedness, intolerance, being non-affirming and non-welcoming, or whatever the latest charge might be. How do we respond generally to this kind of hostility? Does Peter ask us here to defend ourselves? Does he ask us here to try and help people understand the Christian worldview in the face of those kinds of accusations? No, he doesn't. What does he ask of us in the face of such unwarranted accusations? How do we silence the ignorance of foolish people? Answer, by doing good. By doing good. You think, really? That's that's how we defend ourselves and our faith? In the face of people saying things about us that are untrue and unsubstantiated, we just do good? Yes, do good. Now, if people ask us for a reason for our hope, you know, then boom, that's an open door and we can, we can make a defense. He's going to tell us about that in chapter 3, verse 15. But even there, he says, we do that with gentleness and respect. But generally, our posture and our mindset toward the emperor and governors is to do good. That's what submission looks like. It's doing good. As exiles living in a world who really belong to the kingdom of God, to the city of God, as Augustine put it, we ought to be good citizens while we live in this world. People who are known for our good works, people who are known for our good deeds. So, should we be informed about what's happening in government? Yes. Should we be informed about the latest bills that are being put before our lawmakers? Sure we should. We, sh- we can't even, ex- even express our concerns in a, in a quiet and peaceful and respectful way. But what it doesn't mean is that we are antagonistic, or evil-spirited, or Disrespectful. It definitely doesn't mean we should have bumper stickers that that depict a raised middle finger followed by the name of our prime minister. And please, let's not have that bumper sticker on your vehicle right beside a fish emblem. Good night. That does not accomplish anything. And it does more harm than good not doing good here's an example of what that might mean this comes from an article i read yesterday it's from the uk it says a church-run playgroup church-run playgroup has been banned from a local library following complaints from parents that their nursery rhymes mention god helpers from noah's ark playgroup have met at burgess hill library for the past eight years to sing songs based on bible stories How threatening, eh? The group have now been asked to take their sessions elsewhere. Library officials made the decision to exclude the volunteers from baby rhyme time at the venue after families communicated that they were unhappy with the Christian references in their songs. But listen to the response. A spokesman from the King's Church, Mid-Sussex, which runs the Noah's Ark group, said... We are sad that our involvement in Baby Rhyme Time is coming to an end after eight years. It has been a well-loved, free group for people in the local area. However, we respect the decision of West Sussex Library Services, and we will continue to do all that we can to serve them and to serve our local community. That's the right response. Do all that we can to keep serving them, to do good. That's an illustration of this posture. By doing good, you will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, finally, the third benefit of being in subjection to those that govern is that it leverages your freedom to be a slave of God. I'm hoping, as you look at that sentence there on your sermon notes, you you, you see how ironic and maybe oxymoronic it is. I'm using free and slave in the same sentence intentionally because that's how it's framed here. And that's how the Bible talks generally about our newfound Christian transformation. It's a kind of slavery that testifies to the fact that we have been made free. Slavery that testifies to the fact that we have been made free. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free. And that verb live is actually not even in there. The command actually goes all the way back to verse 13. Be subject. Submit as those who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants or as slaves of God. What's he saying here? He's saying that our submission to government is actually an act of our Christian freedom. It's another oxymoron, right? Submission is freedom. Sometimes in our way of thinking. Submitting to government is is not an act of slavery. It's not us being coerced into doing something that we don't really want to do, but do grudgingly under compulsion. No, it's saying, I'm free to obey emperors and governors. Why? Because God tells me I should do that, and this is God's will. And I delight to do God's will as a believer. And if I do God's will, He will take care of me. I'm going to slow down in the playground zone. Even though it's 7 a.m. and there's no one in the playground... Why? Because I'm free to be a slave of God. I'm not a slave to the government or the traffic act. I'm a servant of God. Now, admittedly, it's not always so easy. Our passions of the flesh have a tendency to be intruders, don't they? So we need to be careful. We are susceptible to using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. If our attitude is I don't like, just name it, this or that government decision or government policy, so I'm not going to submit. That's using your freedom as a cover up for evil. Those policies are terrible. I'm not obeying those. I live in a democratic country, and so I'm going to put a bumper sticker on my car so everyone knows how I feel about our prime minister. Be careful. That's using your freedom not to serve God who tells us to be subject to them but as a cover-up for evil. That does more harm than good. It puts a blight on your witness. It puts a blight on God's name, God's good name. It does not adorn the gospel. Be careful. And Peter ends then with this sort of rapid-fire summary statement there in verse 17. This is the Christian posture ending back where it started with honor the emperor. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The the, the general Christian posture toward the world is to honor other people. Honor everyone. Every person is made in the image of God and is therefore worthy of honor and respect because of the fact they're made in the image of God. Then, at a higher level, is our posture toward our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is family. We don't only honor each other here. We honor each other, yes, but we also love one another. The sacrificial kind of love. But then even at another level, higher than that, we not only honor God, we not only love the brotherhood, we fear God. So we not only honor everyone and not only love the brotherhood, we fear God. God gets our highest level of honor and love and respect because He is our highest level of authority. See how that works? It's rising in level. What's said of the first is also true of the second in addition to one more. What's said of the third, the first is true of them, the second is true of them, and the third. And now that we've got all of that aligned right in our minds, how we treat everyone, how we treat each other, how we treat God, how we think of him, then Peter can take us back to his point. As Christians, we honor the emperor. We honor the king. We honor prime minister, the premier, mayor, whatever the authority is. He is not God. He or she is not likely a fellow brother or sister. At least, at the very least, not a member of our church. But he is worthy of honor and respect as a fellow man, as a fellow woman, as someone who is made in God's image, as someone who has been ordained by God to be in this position of authority for this time. So, because we fear God, we are called as the people of God, living in a world that is not our home, to honor our leaders. For this is the will of God. Our Father, we confess that we needed to hear this. In The culture in which we live, in the political climate in which we live. Submission and subjection is not something that we come about naturally. We confess that. But it is something that is expected of us because we are in Christ. He gave himself willingly. He subjected himself to... unmentionable abuse and ridicule. Why? For the pleasure and for the sake of his heavenly father and because of his great love for us. Even though he is the king of kings, he honored Caesar. And it's as we look at Christ that we now understand that we have been transformed and changed and renewed. We can now do what our self-centered, and authority-rejecting sinfulness, balked at. So we pray that you would help us to honor those that occupy positions of authority in our land. Help us to do that by doing good. May that be our posture, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And now I encourage you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.